This is Michael Krasny welcoming you to another episode of our Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast. This morning, we're going to feature a conversation with award-winning visionary and mind-body pioneer and best-selling author, entrepreneur, psychologist, and gerontologist, Ken Dykewald, co-founder and CEO of AgeWave and producer and host of the PBS documentary, The Boomer Century, and the public television special, Life's Third Age, Sages of Aging. He's also the author of a new memoir, his 19th book, Radical Curiosity, and he's given a number of speeches at Davos and talked to over two million people over the course of a very storied career. We shall, as is our wont, explore a whole range of topics with Ken, including ones this time actually tied to the gray and gray matter. I've been saying for a number of episodes that uh, (laughs) the gray and gray matter doesn't necessarily have to do with aging, but today it will, and we'll talk about much more beyond that. And questions such as how best to age productively and gracefully and what retirement means and what the implications are socially, politically, and economically for our aging population. But there's a lot more that will be in the mix. And as is also our will we invite and welcome your questions and comments. And I welcome Ken Dykewald. Good to see you, Michael. Good to see you and good to be seen. And let's begin with uh, a positive note here, because so much of your work has been on the positive side. And some would say, uh, old age, and especially aging itself, is not for sissies. I don't know who coined that. I first heard it from Joan Didion, to drop a name. But the the whole idea of aging diminishing our health and our energy and leading to loss and invisibility is one that's maybe a cornerstone of many people's lives. And yet, you've kind of turned a lot of that around. And where's the upside? Let's begin with that. Well, let me back up for a second and um, set the stage that Throughout all of human history, uh, older people were generally revered. And you can picture the signing of constitutions or back in the 18th century, people would wear white wigs in order to look old. And it was considered that if you were an older person, you should get the better seat. We should listen to you. We should even attempt to be like you. It was the 20th century uh, that heralded an era of youth obsession. Was it even before that with the Industrial Revolution, though? The The Industrial Revolution is what kicked it in, that all of a sudden young people could leave the farms. They didn't have to show any great regard to their parents or grandparents in order to get acreage. They could go to the cities and work in factories, and there was a roaring 20s look. And then the boomers came along after World War II, and before you knew it, everybody wanted to be young all the time. Young was attractive, old was not. Young was cool, old was out. Uh, Young was uh, desirable, old was undesirable. Now, your question, what's the upside? I think that we're in a kind of a morphing time right now. We look around and we see, well, they're the Rolling Stones, you know, going back out on tour and dropping a new album, and Jagger is 80. Um, We see Harrison Ford has just come back as Indiana Jones at 81. Martha Stewart uh, did the cover of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue at, at 81. Jamie Lee Curtis won her first Academy Award in her late 70s. And yeah, you kind of have to scratch your head and say, what's going on here? Now, we still live in a youth-obsessed world. But what's beginning to pop up, almost like microwave popcorn, is you're seeing more and more 60 and 70 and 80-year-olds that are doing cool things with their life, that are going back to school, that are writing their first book of poems. Look at you and I. We're both past the age of 70, and we're both still working away. And, and Jane Fonda says, you know, I'm still hot. 
recently as she turned yeah. 80. Yeah. And there's also a kind of a crazy thing going on, which is that not all, but many older people are showing little buds of wisdom. So it's one thing to be 20 and 30 years old during a strange time in history. But a lot of young people are going through very difficult mental health issues and frightened about the future. Now, that's not to say that all older people are happy go lucky. But when you've been through the death of loved ones, when you've seen your children grow up, when you've been through successes and failures, uh, studies have shown both at Harvard and at Yale that older adults have more resilience. Now, they may not look as cool and hip as they did when they were young, but they've got a kind of a body of perspective to draw upon. And I think we're beginning to recognize that. Uh, I, you know, I got interested and started working in the field of aging, Michael, in 1974, I was 24 years old. Now, that was 49 years ago. I'm 73 now. So I've seen things come and go, and I've seen uh, more and more ads appear that are not as ageist as they used to be. And I'm seeing more and more glamour being attributed to older men and women. And I'm seeing a lot of older people deciding that they're not ready to be cast out to pasture, that they want to write a book. They want to start a new career. They want to go back to school. They want to teach what they've learned. They want to start a church or a synagogue or a mosque. And it's all up in flux right now, as far as I can tell. By the way, the good news is that Throughout 99, and no one's going to believe me when I say this, it just sounds too crazy, but throughout 99% of human history, medical anthropologists now tell us that the average life expectancy was under 18. So that's the average life expectancy. Some people only made it to two years old. Some people lived to 50. Some people lived to 70. But by and large, most people were young. And now we're seeing the life expectancy elevate. And so living to 70, 80, 90, or in the future, 120, will become commonplace. And that's that's a wild thing all by itself. Well, when I think about that longevity, I think about how the key maybe to fluctuating and staying with the changes that go with aging and everything seems to be to just keep moving forward. I mean, mind and body. Keep yourself busy. Keep yourself in a sense of purpose. Isn't that pretty much square with your research? Yeah, exactly. And I would say it, it's it's not something you can just turn on the TV and sit back in your couch and everything works out fine. You got to work to keep your body from falling apart. You know, when you're 30, you can eat whatever you feel like and stay up late. And once you start passing 60 and 70 and 80, you know, the stuff that creeps in, you know, and you see it in your friends and you feel it in your own joints and your mental functioning. So you got to work at it. But you add the idea of purpose in. And what we're discovering is that, well, I'll give you an example. I was friends with John Glenn years ago. And when Glenn announced he was going to go back up into space at 77, I was asked to provide commentary for one of the networks. And I listened to his first few interviews and all the young reporters were kind of poking at him. Don't you think you're a little old for this? What if you have to go to the potty? What if your head blows up? And Glenn, who was a tough guy, turned to these young reporters and he said, hey, just because I'll be 77 doesn't mean I still don't have dreams. 
And that really made me stop and think, Michael, because I think in a youth era, we've assumed that young people have hopes and dreams and you either achieve them or you don't. And then it, it time's up. What Glenn was suggesting is that if you're going to be living in a new era, a new age of aging, you might have new dreams at 70. You might have your biggest dreams beyond when you ever thought it was possible. And we've got to open up the door to those possibilities. And so purpose is less a matter of simply hanging on for many people, for a growing number of people. It's about discovering what their new purpose might be in their later years. I like the distinction you draw attention to that David Brooks makes between the virtues of success and the virtues for a eulogy. I mean, there's a sense when you're younger, you are striving towards success. And when you're older, maybe you want to think about the good things you can do, the real differences that you can make, the impact that you can have, and maybe even a altruistic way or a way that really serves society or serves a greater good. I like that distinction. Yeah, let's stay on David Brooks for a second because he's become kind of a modern philosopher of aging. Now, who would have thought that? Um, and exactly as you said, he says at the end of your days, you'll have two resumes. One will be your career resume. What'd you do? How much money did you make? And honestly, nobody's going to really care about that. But then he says, you're going to have your eulogy resume. Who were you as a human being? What did you give to others? And he also implores us to think about that if you're 50 or 60 or 70, because that might require, uh, you know, hands on the wheel and a right turn because a lot of people for most of our lives, we're busy chasing a career or we're raising our kids. And then all of a sudden you find yourself with a lot of what I call time affluence. You got a lot of time in front of you more than humans have ever had. We figured it out that the boomers in the United States are going to have 20 trillion. No, I'm sorry. 4 trillion hours of free time in the next 20 years. Well, what do you do with that? In the old school, when my grandparents reached retirement age, they pretty well just sat on the porch and waited till their batteries wore out. Now people have to scratch their heads and say, do I have role models? Maybe I can do something good for the world. Maybe I can give some of my money or my lessons or my wisdom to others who are less fortunate. Maybe we can make the world more equitable. And I think we're seeing not all older people, but a growing number of older people think altruistically about what role they can play. And it's not just about the hustle. If they have the economic ability to look into that and feel the independence that that can provide, right? Yes and no. Some of the <laughs> most generous older people in America are not the richest. So, yes, it requires a certain amount of financial security in order to live 70, 80, 90, 100 years without going to sleep worried every night. But I wouldn't assume that, you know, some of the most contributing older people are people who are giving at their church or people who are helping raise the grandchildren or people who are helping in their communities, and they may not be wealthy people. Uh, it's the time for all of us to kind of take stock of who are the good ones among us, and how do we be more like them? Well, you got an award. Uh, you got a lot of awards, but I remember you got an award uh, from Esalen Institute for, 
looking at human potential and the possibility of that as a great resource, older people, I mean, I've always put forth the idea and advocated that older people have so many stories to tell to the young and to impart wisdom to the young. They should be in the schools. They should be there on a voluntary or even, if it's possible to pay for them, some instances, basis. Those kinds of uses of older people and the kind of uses that can enhance their own lives seem to me to be something that we should be striving for much to a much greater degree. I also think that when you talk about um, the third age and encores and new chapters and all these kinds of things, it highlights the reality and the enlightenment that people can have when they bring to the table a whole new view of what this stage of life means. But there was an article that you did in the Harvard Business Review that um, time to retire retirement. Let's talk for a moment about retirement because for some people that means death almost. I'm going to retire. I'm not going to do what I did my whole life. Yeah, you start building up the virtues that can go in your eulogy and all those things we talked about with Brooks. But it's scary stuff to suddenly retire and give up a career and a profession and a job, whatever that job might have been, blue-collar job, I don't care what it is, that was part of your ontology, part of your being. You know, um, Why not retire? Why did you write that article in the Harvard Business Review? Well, let me first say that when I was growing up, perhaps you too, there I remember there being three flavors of ice cream, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. And if you went to a fancy restaurant, there was a Neapolitan, which was sort of a mashup. Now there's hundreds of ice cream choices. And I would say that up until recently, you either worked or you retired. And generally, when people reach 60 or 65, they stop working. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, for our grandparents, you might have had a couple of five years left on your clock before your batteries wore out. Now, the average retirement age is about 64, 65. You might live another 20 or 25 years. For many people, that's boring. Now, I want to be careful and say not for everyone. For some people, they've worked hard and they don't want to work anymore. And so a lot of people, afford, actually, I mean, people who work hard uh, often look forward to retirement. Especially because, physical yeah. labor. Yeah. People think, I just don't want to do that anymore. But as more and more there are jobs and opportunities that require wisdom and perspective and, you know, relationships with people, there's more and more opportunity. And by the way, when Social Security was drafted, the unemployment level in America was 25%. So part of the idea of it was to give a little stipend to the elder population, but let's get them out of the workforce to make room for the young. With our unemployment being under 5%, we need a lot of these older workers. We need all the doctors that are retiring. We need engineers that are retiring. We need FBI agents that are retiring. And so this is a time that people are rethinking. And Michael, you'll find this interesting because it's kind of like what you do and what your wife Leslie does. A lot of people say, I don't want to retire completely, but I don't want to work full hog anymore. So if I could work three or four days a week, or if I can work eight months out of the year, or I can work on projects, or maybe even try something new, like you mentioned, for example, um, Young people today are probably going to live a hundred year life. Who's going to teach them about money or about taking care of your body or about the accumulation of wisdom? Maybe we ought to have a elder core 
of retirees going into all the school systems, teaching young people about aging. Um, it's become an essential skill that most people are clueless about. So it's a time for us to think about the systems and the infrastructure we've got in place. By the way, I'll tell you from the studies that I've seen and I've been a part of, the people who give back, who volunteer, are happier, healthier, and actually live longer. So the fact that we've not made it normal or commonplace or easy to know how to volunteer. And, and I was brought in to watch a volunteer program that people were very proud of, in which they had retirees in Philadelphia a few years ago. And I went there and what I saw was older people licking envelopes. And I thought, come on, we could do better than that. We've got retired doctors, we've got retired nurses, we've got retired marketers, we've got retired uh, communicators like yourself um, who are jumping back in. I mean, think about it. You retired and then you started your podcast. So, you know, what's up with that? I think that's the way of the future. I think that people are taking note of older people and they're realizing that they're not growing old the way older people used to. And they like it. And there's a lot of questioning as to whether retirement is affordable or whether it's stimulating enough. I'll speak about questioning. We've got some questions coming in, and I'd like to go to them. Uh, Tessa from Baltimore. Some argue that antibiotics made the largest positive impact on human lifespan in the last century and that our current lifespan is slipping because of our American diet. What are your thoughts? Well, if... Nessa's in Baltimore, got the National Institutes on Health there. So maybe she or somebody in her tribe is involved with the healthcare field. It's a complicated puzzle. And let me try to tell you how it looks to me. I agree that the breakthrough that led to penicillin may have made the biggest impact on elevating life expectancy for so many people. Uh, all of a sudden, the illnesses that used to wipe out our grandparents. Thank you, Arthur you can, Fleming. <laughs> you can now get a shot and be done with it. And um, I'll add another strange twist to that. Syphilis was the fifth leading cause of death throughout most of history, which also caused certain social behaviors. Well, all of a sudden, penicillin, you could be free of that disease and the world changed. Life expectancy elevated, 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 got up to about 79. And then during COVID, it dropped back to about 77 in the United States. Uh, but research last week just showed that it's elevated back another year. But here's the weird part of all this. Let's think of lifespan, the average number of years that we live. The United States, for all the money we spend on healthcare, and we think of ourselves as being truly an exceptional nation. And I love so much about life in America. But we are 40th in the world when it comes to life expectancy. There are 39 countries in the world that live longer than we do. But wait, then there's what's called health span. How many of your years are you healthy, vital, active, productive, versus are you beginning to fall apart? We're 68th in the world when it comes to our health span in the United States. So it's dismal. What we all want is to live long and to live well and then not have the suffering and the falling apart stretched out. 
Well, quality of life, basically. Quality of life is exactly what it's about. And I think we need to hold the mirror back to our own approach to healthcare and realize that we don't take terribly good care of our bodies. We eat a lot of junk food. We've got, you know, two thirds of the population is overweight. We have a medical system that is kind of all over the place. Uh, we've got pharma industries that are making all kinds of money. We have insurers that are making all kinds of money. We have a profit-oriented system. We don't even have geriatric competency as, as a key variable among our doctors and nurses and physical therapists and, and nurse associates and so on. And it's become time, I think, for us to stop and think not just about how long might we live, but having done away with many, not all, of the acute infectious diseases with things like penicillin, what are the challenges today? What are the breakthroughs we now need in healthcare so that we and our children and grandchildren can live long, healthy lives? When did you begin this whole odyssey of yours uh, and get interested in aging? I know, like I said in the introduction, you were one of your first books was about mind-body. It was before people were making that those kind of connections between mind and body. And yet, was there any major catalyst that led you into this field that you're in? Well, there kind of was. Um, I initially went to school to be a physicist. Um, and then in my junior year at a little college in Pennsylvania, Lehigh University, I had to take a humanities course. So I took a psychology course. I didn't know what psychology was. And it was the psychology of human potential. And the idea being put forward in the course was that all of us had enormous capabilities, most of which were going untapped. And I thought, wow, that's an absolutely fascinating thought. And at the end of that semester, I quit school and moved to Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, where I spent the next four years um, trying to study things like Tai Chi and biofeedback and meditation and taking encounter groups and all these kind of crazy new agey type things. And let me give a plug for your book here, because that's that's the story. I mean, you're setting out on a motorcycle from New Jersey and winding up in California with Esalen and yoga and all these, including some substances and whatnot. That's the essence of your of your story. But yeah, well, it's the, it's the beginning chapters. And then I got invited to join two wonderful women who were creating a year-long curriculum, not just a weekend workshop or class at the mall. And we were going to try to integrate all of these different therapies and approaches. But Gay Luce, the, the founder of this movement, Gay said, hey, let's try all these things with older people. Her mom had not been well. She had hypertension. She taught her biofeedback and deep breathing and meditation, and she got better. So here I was, a 24-year-old, you know, hippie guy, yoga teacher. Um, and as you said, I swung back, finished my undergraduate and did a doctorate on the psychology of the body and wrote my very first book, book called Body Mind when I was 22. But I found myself captivated by older people. And they were walking into our research project on walkers and walking out without them. And they were feeling better than they felt for years. And I thought, wow, aging is more protein, it's more plastic, it's more changeable than we have thought. Project became a big success. 
we started setting up similar programs all around the world. And before I knew it, I found myself captivated, not just by elders, but by aging. And what struck me was a little bit like we've already touched on, that we were heading towards the future that due to elevating longevity for the masses, declining birth rates as we became more urban and civilized and not living on farms, and the aging of the boomer generation, my own generation, the time would come in the future where almost like a seesaw, we would flip-flop and aging would go from the periphery to the center of the bullseye. And that's what we're seeing right now, that we're seeing more talk about older adults, more questioning of people's leadership potentialities. We're learning about how to stay fit and healthy longer. The chronic illnesses of life's later years, from Alzheimer's to diabetes to kidney disorders and so on, are becoming more and more commonplace. And we're being challenged to envision how we can do a better job of creating an, a version of aging that most people can benefit from and enjoy their lives and even give back more. Yeah, I like what you say at one point about the boomers, which you've written a lot about, and that is that they used to be the generation that said, don't trust anybody over 30, and now most of them are over 60. They've doubled that number. Got some more questions coming in here. This is uh, from Julie in San Francisco who says, do you think series like Grace and Frankie uh, with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin help with changing the perspective on what 70s and 80s can look like? What responsibility does the media have helping shape our perspective of older members of our community? Thank you for the question, Julie, and an important one because the media has shaped a lot of our views and made us ageist in many ways that we don't even recognize. I was reading about, you know, uh, some the sense of older black people and advertisements, maybe going into pharmacies for a while. That was about it. Things are changing, though. They're changing. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that shows like Grace and Frankie are contributors to people beginning to think that it's okay to be 75 or 80 and to be sexy or to be playful or to have friends or to be doing something with your life. Now, I have to tell you that as a as an observer of this age wave, as I call it. I was taken a year or so ago when Betty White passed away because Betty White passed away at 99. And the amount of media coverage was massive. People said, wow, is that what 99 could be? She's attractive. She's fun. She's funny. She's caring. She loves animals. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a version of a 99-year-old. You know, think of Clara Peller, the gal that back in the 90s was in the Where's the Beef commercial and, you know, a little bun and yelling, Where's the Beef? We used to get images of older people where they were buffoons. Now we're starting to see more and more older people that are appealing. We're not all the way there, but it is happening. And I'll give you an example. My wife and I, Maddie, we went to see Top Gun about a year or so ago. And whether you like Tom Cruise or not, he did a lot of his own stunts. He's 59 when that movie was shot. I looked it up, and when Cocoon came out, the little old man who played the lead, Wilford Brimley, he was 49 years old at that time. So it's hard to picture, but we're seeing more and more older people who don't seem like older people. 
and the way they used to be. Uh, I want to add one other twist to this that, um, and you know this because you're a media wizard. Um, in 1945, there were only 8,000 television sets in America. Hard to believe. But when, when the boys came back from the war, all of a sudden TV took off and kids could watch it. And advertisers began to realize that people formed brand preferences in their teen years. So if we can get you using our toothpaste, or if you like a pair of Tom McCann shoes, or maybe one day you'll buy a Buick, then we got you for life. It's called lifetime brand loyalty. And you don't bother marketing or creating media for older people because they're already set in their ways. And they were. Older people in that era were pretty set in their ways, plus having grown up in the shadow of the Depression, they were very frugal. Today, 50-year-olds are falling in love again. Seven-year-olds are buying new software. They haven't had a golden age uh, bachelor. Uh, yeah, the bachelor. golden bachelor. Uh, and there's a marriage coming up in January. People talk about it. Initially, it was a joke. And then people thought, what's so funny about that? Here's a guy... And here are these women who want to be in love again. And so I think what's breaking loose is the stereotype notions that older people are falling down and they can't get up or that they're kind of off to the sidelines or they've got every kind of physical malady you could think of. And if you watch the news on television, you'll see that the ads largely have to do with older people. And then they have to list all the side effects and it's enough to get you crazy. But more and more we are seeing, and I, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna. I've been on this beat now for 49 years, and I wouldn't have said this two years ago. But more and more now we are seeing 60 and 70 and 80-year-olds popping in television shows, popping into movies, being in ads, often that are multi-generational. And I think we're beginning to see a dissolution of some of the ageism that has held us in its grip through well, most of our lives. That's very encouraging to hear. And I should mention, when I worked for ABC a number of years, they used to talk about the ratings, and they talked about the older population as tonnage, because they don't buy. That was the notion, they don't buy. You want to appeal to the younger demographics, because they're the ones that are going to buy. Not true anymore. And there anymore. was always a Just line. not true anymore, yeah. It used to be, this TV show or that TV show got this kind of rating with the sought-after youth demographic. That was the exactly, line, yeah. sought-after. And if it would have been sought-after white people or sought-after rich people, somebody would have taken exception to it. But everybody, it was okay, it was acceptable to refer to older people as not sought-after. That's changing. Talking with Ken Dykewell in his newest book, uh, a memoir is called Radical Curiosity, uh, which he's writing at this ripe age of his. I wrote a memoir when I was much younger called Off Mike, and I probably should have waited like you did until you had all this behind you. But let's get some more questions in here. I've got Mitch, who's with us from St. Louis. And Mitch, thank you for the question. The concept of age-friendly cities has gained traction. What elements do you believe are essential for a city to be truly inclusive and accommodating to people of all ages? Well, I'll mention a few. Um First of all, this phrase age-friendly is gaining in popularity. And um, Harvard put out a study last year that only 3% of the homes in America are age-friendly. Now, you may never have stopped to think about it, but a quarter of the elderly 
fall each year and usually in their own homes. Throw rugs, slippery surfaces, wires that shouldn't be there. So one aspect of an age-friendly community is that the homes are accessible and safe. Also, we find that people might have hurt their knee or they've had a hip replacement and having too many steps. Think of the public library or your city hall. All those beautiful steps might have one day shown power, but they're not age-friendly. Transportation. Not everybody wants to be driving all the time. And as we grow older, sometimes our vision is not as crisp as it was when we were younger, particularly at night. And so public transportation becomes a key element of an age-friendly community. Another dimension is, is there an accessible medical system that when I was a young man, I, um, I spent a lot of time in Sun City, Arizona, sort of like Margaret Mead going to Samoa. And what I was struck by was that all the streets in Sun City either took you to the rec center or the hospital. And it was no joke. That was, those were vital stopping points if you were 70 or 80 years old. Not so much if you're a young family, you want to be able to get to the playground or to school. But if we think of age-friendly communities, we think of public transportation and access to good health care and access to social activities. I would also say a lively economy, but not killer in terms of cost. Uh, what some people are realizing as they grow older is that the place where they have lived may be too expensive for them to think of living in their later years. So maybe there's a less expensive community, or maybe there's a part of the country where there's no state tax, or maybe you can get more of a home in Virginia than you could if you were living in New Jersey. And so trading your home equity for a better quality of life is an age-friendly theme as well. And the last thing I wanna say is that age-friendliness partly has to do with a willingness on the part of the younger generations to be welcoming to older people. We have a lot of, you know, we've we've heard of racism, but there's a lot of ageism in the United States. You know, people don't want to wait in line behind an older people at the supermarket. They don't want to have older people uh, control the vote. They may not want older people to stay at the, at the job because that, they might think that that's keeping them from getting ahead. So we've got to, for age friendliness, we've got to do away with some of those prejudices and that ageism. Yeah, how do you change those attitudes? They're inbred often in many respects. There's just lack of respect for older people. It used to be, you know, offer your seat on a bus to an older person or go out of your way. You and I were Boy Scouts, right? Go out of your way to help an older person cross the street. All those kinds of things are sort of embedded in the culture and they're just not there anymore to the degree that they used to be. They're not. And so we got some work to do. Um, you know, going through any kinds of social or political or ethnic or demographic changes, you don't just snap your fingers and then everybody falls in line. You've got to raise people's awareness. You've got to talk about these issues like you and I are doing. And you've got to encourage communities to be more inclusive. You know, I'll give you an example. I did a podcast for Microsoft and I will mention their name, and they wanted to be the most inclusive company in the world. And so they put out a big report 
and the report featured people of different ethnic backgrounds, religions, sexual preferences, but everybody in the report was under 50. By the way, 50,000 people signed up for that podcast. And I called them right out. I said, hey, what's with you guys? You know, an, a, a, an inclusive workforce also includes 80-year-olds and 60-year-olds. And it's not just about race or ethnicity. It's about age, too. And we have this fantastic opportunity, Michael, for the first time in history to be more diverse and have people from different perspectives and different skills and even having grown up in different moments in history, all contributing their perspective into the melting pot. And in many ways, that was the dream of America. And this is just another dimension. And here's Reed, who uh, always has good questions. Thank you for these, Reed. Actually, a couple of questions. I don't know if we can twin these together, but let's try. Does uh, It's Dr. Dykewald, Reed. He says, Mr. Dykewald, does... Dr. Dykewald placed much faith in certain types of supplements for brain health, such as mushroom-derived or herbal-based. And then he says, wouldn't our healthcare dollars be better spent in propagating the views and practices recommended by the guest? For example, providing health club memberships and dietary counseling. Valid points. Um, you know, if I were to fix our healthcare system, and I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD, um, I would, first of all, make Medicare less confusing. I mean, if you gave me a million dollars in cash right now and all I had to do was explain Medicare, part A, part B, traditional donut holes, part D, I couldn't do it. Uh, it's like a mean joke um, that you pass your 65th birthday and all of a sudden a healthcare system that's supposedly designed for you is incomprehensible. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I shouldn't be laughing. It must be horrible for some people. I can't, I can't even imagine what they go through trying to figure no, that stuff I'm, out. No, and I'm, you know, I've written 19 books. I've got a PhD. I'm Mr. Agewave, and I don't understand it. I get a document each month. I don't have it nearby here, but it says on the top left, from this is for, for Ken Dyke from Medicare, this is not a bill. And in the upper right, it says, this is your bill. And it's like, wait a minute. Who understands that? Another thing is that we should all, I think this is where artificial intelligence comes in. We're all so unique. And if we're fascinated by supplements, rather than just taking a handful off the shelf and hope that some of them are good for us, maybe what we need is some sort of a diagnostic so that each of us can know, almost like a health ways, like before Google Maps and Waze came along, you kind of had to figure out how to get someplace by looking at a map. And maybe there was bad traffic or the bridge was out and you, you know, you were stuck. Why not create sort of an AI-based health ways so that each of us could know what supplements, what exercise, what amount of sleep would be best for us in order to help us live a hundred years healthy? What else would I recommend? I think that we need to create a more integrated system. Um, if you're over the age of 70, you might have two or three conditions and you might have a diabetologist and you might have a cardiologist and you might have a nephrologist. And do they talk to each other? They may not. It's a hodgepodge. And last, I want to say that, that science needs to be a more integrated part of our healthcare system. For example, 
when I was 30, I collaborated on a book with Dr. Jonas Salk. And one night over dinner, Dr. Salk told me the story back decades earlier in the 1940s when poliomyelitis was rampant. People thought we're going to need a lot more iron lungs in the future. And what Salk said was, no, we need a vaccine to wipe out polio. And he had his breakthrough in 1953. The scariest disease for people as they age is Alzheimer's and related dementias. Now, we know that because there have been lots of studies done. And, you know, when you're 30 or 40, you're not thinking about it, but you're 60 or 70 and it crosses your mind every day. Um, yes, we are funding more Alzheimer's research than we did a few years ago, but I would say not enough and not quickly enough. So how do we beef up our scientific breakthroughs? Like the woman mentioned earlier in our visit, uh, how penicillin was such a powerful change agent. If we could find a way to get an inexpensive $50 vaccine for Alzheimer's so that we could live our lives with cognitive health and with brain health and make contributions and continue working and not be so frightened, that'd be a great thing also. I think we need a new grand concerto for uh, a precision medicine that's unique to each of us, but also will create health equity for everyone. What I'm noticing, Michael, and it's partly by being an author and being in a field, that the billionaires are all chasing down stem cells and vitamin supplements and all these kind of radical new anti-aging treatments. But if you're modestly resourced, or you don't know how to get your hands on what's the right one of all of those, you're at a disadvantage. So I'm a little bit, maybe it's the boomer in me, but I don't think it ought to be just rich people who get to be healthy and live long. I think that this ought to be something for all of us. Well said, and I'm with you there. Uh, you are also a trustee of the X Foundation, uh, and they've been looking for the kinds of things you're talking about for many years now with big rewards in the offing. Yeah, so the X Prize Foundation, started by Peter Diamandis, believes in gamification. So the idea is different than the way the government works, which is somebody gets a grant and then good luck. I hope you come up with something. X Prize takes a challenge and creates a big reward, and then people all over the world can compete. So if you go to their website, you see that in the last few weeks, they've announced a hundred and one million dollar prize for people who can meaningfully match health span to lifespan. And everybody's uh, allowed to compete, high school kids, college professors. I remember a few years ago, there was a, how do you clean up car spills prize that the X prize did. And guys that ran a tattoo parlor in Las Vegas uh, took second place. And so you don't have to necessarily be pedigree problem solver, the whole world can compete. And that's kind of exciting. It is exciting. I think I may have told you the story of uh, when I co-hosted with Robin Williams an XPRIZE event at Google's, at the Google grounds, uh, the Google mansion. And, um, you know, humor is so important. We talked about this, you know, when you're getting older and when you need humor as a kind of lifeline and way to feel more alive and so forth. And, it was great having Williams there. I mean, 
I thought, you know, I could invest a little humor in this as well. But of course, he takes over, and he did take over, and he was hilarious, uh, as his genius always matched that ability. And uh, I just, it was very memorable. Talk about humor for a moment, because you and I have talked about it, how important it is as we age to have that as a lifespan ingredient. Well, there may be viewers and listeners that don't know this about you, and I would encourage them to, you know, Google Michael Krasny. But make sure it's this Michael Krasny and not the billionaire, because I get confused from time to time. There's a, there's a Michael Krasny, Michael P. Krasny, who started CDW Computers. And it lists, really? Yeah. And, and I get these things in Forbes as uh, the wrong Michael Krasny, my picture next to his name and things of that sort. I just want to make that clear. Well, you're an expert and a student of humor and different ethnic or, orientations to humor. And so this is a topic near and dear to your heart. You're right. I had a phone call yesterday uh, with a group of executives at a company that focused on play and their belief is that play and humor and fun are what keep us happy and what keep us tuned in and what keep us getting too serious. We, you know, we're living during a bit of a dark time and people are yelling at each other and punching each other and bombing each other. And we could use a little more lightheartedness and a little more playfulness and a little more humor. And it is true that people who've got humor in their life are more enjoyable to be around. They spread the cheer and they wind up being healthier too. Uh, we just did a survey where we asked people, what's more important, being youthful or useful? And the response came back four to one, that being useful was more important than just looking young or acting young. And a key part of being useful was having fun and cheering people up. And if there were young people in your neighborhood that were having a hard go of it, to tell them a joke, tell them a funny story, uh, to bring some cheer into people's lives. I got a good joke um, that I think uh, may be relevant here that I don't think I've ever told on the air or in podcasts. Go for it. Well, I was just with some friends down in Phoenix, and they love this joke. So, And I think it's your kind of joke, actually, if I read you right, as I think I have through the years. So the joke is that uh, Mother Teresa is working in India, and she's doing all this wonderful work, and they get a call, and they take her out of this poor section. They say, there's a call for you. And uh, says, this is the Pope. You're doing great work in India, but I want to send you to the Congo. People need you in Africa, especially in the Congo. They send her to the Congo, and she starts doing work there. And again, it's tremendous effect on the people in the population. And uh, she gets another call from the Pope, and the Pope says, well, you've done great in the Congo, but I want to send you to Malibu. People need you now in Malibu. They're lonely. They're unhappy. So she goes there, and then suddenly the Pope calls her, and he gets a recorded answer. This is Terry. I'm at the beach right now, but you can leave a message. Anyway, end of joke. Um, <laughs> all right, we'll go to some more calls. This is Melody from Ogden, Utah, who says, what advice do you have for individuals approaching retirement in terms of planning for a meaningful and purposeful post-career life? Well, Terry, it's an interesting thing because my kids who are now in their 30s, before they graduated high school, and when they were contemplating the next four years of their life, there were 
books and booklets. There were career counselors. You could consider the military. You could go talk to a recruiter. You could try out a job. If you were thinking of going to college, you could go visit the college. There were people you talked to on campus. You could even spend a weekend. And that's for four years of your life. And if it didn't work out, there was guidance for how to make the change, change colleges or take a job. Yet when it comes to retirement, 20, 25 years in front of us, there are no such orientation programs or boot camps or tryouts. And so I've seen that there's a lot of people that go through kind of a disorientation and even depression when they first retire because they just don't know what they ought to be doing. And it could be as simple as, what time did I got, do I get up in the morning? How do I fill my day? Or as you mentioned earlier, Michael, if you get a lot of your identity from the work you do, and that allows you to have conversations that stimulate you. And if you turn that off, unless you replace it with interesting and stimulating activities, you're going to feel isolated. You're going to feel lost. And so I think we need to see more people transitioning into retirement in television shows. I think we need to see it more in movies. I think co community colleges all ought to offer courses in contemplating what you might do with the next stage in your life. Because the not knowing what to do is commonplace. And here's Timothy from Austin, Texas. Thank you for this question, Timothy. He says, your book, Age Wave, discusses the intersection of demographics, personal values, and social change. How have these factors evolved since the book's publication, and what new trends do you find noteworthy? So believe it or not, I sat down to write Age Wave in 1980. It took me nine years. It came out in 1989, but that's a long time ago. It was my eighth book. Some of the new trends that I see happening now as I mentioned earlier, I think we've entered a new age of aging. Um, I look around and I see more and more 60 and 80 and 90 year olds in movies and TV shows and doing cool things. And didn't know that that would happen back in the 1980s. Uh, what else? There is more and more tension being placed now on how do you keep your body fit, healthy, longer. My wife, Maddie, has got a book coming out in May called Ageless Aging, the Mayo Clinic Press, and it's for women, uh, is, is publishing, and she's already getting a massive amount of attention on it. So that's coming alive. Um, there's also uh, more and more questioning of whether retirement is for everybody. You mentioned an article I wrote 20 years ago in the Harvard Business Review, tied for first place with Peter Drucker, called It's Time to Retire Retirement. Things don't necessarily move quickly, but today many people are wondering, should they retire? Should they not retire? Is it for them? Versus everybody ought to do it. And last, I want to say that I was captivated in the middle. I wasn't alive during this moment in time. But there was a uh, medical student in Great Britain named Roger Bannister. And he was the runner. Yeah. He broke the four-minute mile, yeah. right. And it was believed that humans could not run that fast. And he did. And then all of a sudden, people all over the world started running faster. So I'm a believer that transformation doesn't necessarily happen you know, by snapping your fingers. But as you see more and more examples of people who you think, hey, I could do that, or listen to that story, 
that inspires me, or this guy Dykewald, um, he's saying that, you know, he still likes working and he's 73 and there's Krasny still going at it. In fact, started a new career after he retired. Maybe I'll do that too. And I think that like Roger Bannister, the more people we have trying new things and reinventing themselves and talking about it, the more it opens the door for millions more people. Well, I'll give a plug for your book here too, because you've had a long marriage, so have I. That helps the aging process. It's been pretty much empirically proven that long marriages, especially if they're pretty good marriages, uh, really help you get aging uh, into place and um, age well. But Radical Curiosity, just the title itself, resonates with me. Keep that burning, keep that furnace going as long as you can, really, right? Right. There's a lot of focus on wealth and success and abundance. and But what I've come to appreciate in my life is that curiosity, you know, what do you care about? What matters to you? Why is that happening in the world? What is the state of the climate? Um, rather than having a, a formed opinion, um, being willing to be curious and learn, keep learning, I think keeps people youthful and useful and makes the aging ride more enjoyable. Have we become a gerontocracy though? I mean, you know, I've heard a bad, what some will think is a bad joke about uh, the upcoming presidential election. Uh, someone, a comic who will remain unnamed who's a friend said, uh, I'm deciding to vote for the older of two evils. Uh, I mean, the idea in many people's minds are Trump and Biden, how have we gotten to this point? And Again, it brings in aging, and it brings in a lot of what we've been talking about here, because these are men who are judged. Well, actually, it's Biden who's judged to be too old. He's only three years older than uh, than Trump is. But, you know, where's the youth in all of this in our country? A lot of people are asking, aren't they? I have to say that at the risk of being ageist, I think there's something good about having all the generations dreaming of the future. Uh, to have so many older people making decisions, whether they realize it or not, they're viewing the world through their life stage, through their position in history, through their memories. And they may not be as tuned in or as open-minded about what the 20 and 30 and 40 year olds are dreaming of and thinking of. So I think the idea of succession, not the TV show succession, but the idea of not, how do we find ourselves in a situation where, first of all, it's amazing that we've got older people who are still game to run for office and still want to be in a leadership role. But I think we'd be better off if we had more generational distribution of our future leaders. Yeah, well, we have uh, a sense of a dearth of leadership in general, which I think a lot of cultures don't have. They make their youth have that radical curiosity that you talk about, which will make them seek positions of power or positions of responsibility. I think it's a, I'm sort of with you. I, you know, I, I look at the people that we've got taking the lead to run our country. And I wish that there were some more choices from younger generations that were viable and connected. And by the way, it's not just the leaders, it's the voting 
uh, people who are older are disproportionately the heaviest voters in 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 most countries around the world. And so, whether you realize it or not, a decision to keep Medicare and Social Security as they are, but not give breaks to young people for college tuition, is a gerontocratic preference. Um, older people generally tend to vote in terms of what will affect them and their time horizon. And I think we need more of the voices of the young in the political discussion. There are a lot of those preferences built into our system. At the same time that older people are often invisible, not only to politicians of all ages, but to the population. Yeah. Um, they've been invisible, but I think you'd agree that these last several years they've become much more visible. Well, thanks to people like you and Claude Pepper and a few other names that come to mind. I mean, we've been... Well, you've just, you've just declared your Asian life stage because most younger people wouldn't even know who Claude Pepper was. Um, by the way, he was a great figure in the aging field, popularized a lot of issues pertaining to older adults, and some people called him Red Pepper because he was left-leaning. Um but who are the young people? Who are the young stars? Who are the young? My wife and I went to see the Taylor Swift and the Beyonce movies just so we could see what everybody was talking about. And I'll tell you what, I didn't recognize their music, but I recognized talent and excellence at performance. And I we felt that it's partly our responsibility at this stage in life to dip in to life and culture and music and fashion from the point of view of what young people are seeing so that we can be more tuned in to the younger generations. That's a tough question, but do you have a preference between those two? I mean, especially since uh, Kanye West made it into a major issue when he came up and said Beyonce deserved the Grammy rather than Taylor Swift. I thought that the Taylor Swift production was the most extraordinary rock concert production I had ever seen. I thought the camera cuts and the camera shots that Beyonce used were mind-boggling. And uh, never seen anything quite like it, sort of TikTok times a million. And um, they're both very, very, very talented young women. We haven't seen the last of the contributions they're going to make. That's a good diplomatic response to that question. Uh, it was a bifurcated question, but in talking about TikTok for a moment, let's just, what effect do you see that having on youth? I mean, it's a youth culture that's so invested in TikTok. And right now, in fact, uh, I've mentioned this a number of times that social media, what we're seeing, the other social media besides TikTok and YouTube are not necessarily moving up, but those two are just soaring upward. And I have some concerns about TikTok and the ownership of the Chinese and everything. We won't go there though. But I'm wondering of this effect of this quick kind of thing that people see in TikTok and the effect on the culture itself. Any thoughts? When I was an undergraduate, I did one of my undergraduate thesis papers on Sesame Street and how I felt that Sesame Street had too many cuts that, you know, three or four minutes and then yeah. you're on to the next thing. Same, and I same thought principle. Yeah. Pe people are going to be trained to not think things through if all the cuts have got to be so quick. And TikTok comes along and you get little 20 second movies. And not only that, but the, the, the algorithms are designed to send you TikTok messaging or clips that you've indicated an interest in. So it's all customized. 
and it could be screwing with your head. And I know that particularly for younger people, there's been a lot of evidence, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or some of the other social media sites, that for a lot of young people, especially young girls, it builds up this FOMO, this fear of missing out, which can be psychologically addictive and damaging. And those of us who are older maybe know so little about these social media platforms that we don't pay them any attention. But when I see that the soaring rates of, rates of mental health distress and I see the correlation with social media, I think we need some more grownups in the room uh, monitoring and managing the emergence of, and there'll be other ones, you know, TikTok will be replaced by another one that'll be hip and cool and play different tricks. And uh, by the way, I'm a TikToker and I don't post, but I follow. And there's a lot of entertaining stuff that's, you know, Agreed. if you don't want to watch a yeah. whole movie, you watch a 30 second movie. And um, so it's not worthless, but what's the effect on our thinking if we're getting trained to think in 20 and 30 second bites. You know, when I uh, decided uh, we're going to talk to Ken Dykewald and made that decision, I thought never would have imagined winding up talking about Beyonce and Taylor Swift and TikTok, but that's where these conversations can go. And you and I have made a study of conversation, just a good example of that. I want to, first of all, remind those who are listening that Ken Dykewald's book it's called Radical Curiosity. Is nineteen, and I do want to say that all of the earnings from the book are being donated to Esalen Institute. That a little bit of the David Brooks philosophy here. That it's not about how can I get rich on this book. It's about how can I give back. Yeah, and you've been given a lot back, and I commend you. And thank you. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you, and it's certainly been a great pleasure to have known you. And I think we can call ourselves lifers as far as friendship. Uh, so thank you for this. And thanks to all who joined us for this Gray Matter with Michael Krasny episode. And to all of you who will be joining us in the future on Apple, Spotify, or graymatter.show, where we, again, invite you to sign up for membership in this growing and exciting community. That's Gray with an E. Thanks to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team of Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, Jeff, and Colleen. And to this episode's special guest, Ken Dykewald, Dr. Ken Dykewald, a special thanks as well. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.